Welcome to The Nail in the Coffin. In just a minute, we'll be joined by Rayan Ali, author of the book NBA Jam, which is going to be coming out next week. But first, we want to let you know that The Nail is looking for a presenting sponsor. For a ridiculously low price, we will do a live ad read to promote your business in this spot at the start of every episode. We'll also link to your website in every episode's show notes, and we'll have an ad for your site on our site, thenailpodcast.com. I'm sure we'll throw in some other good stuff as well. If you're interested, email us at thenailpodcast at gmail.com or send us a DM on Twitter at thenailpodcast. The Nail in the Coffin! I'm Tom Valentino. He's Travis Yuley. Trav, what's the good word, man? Uh, I'm Travis Yuley. Uh, it got cold all of a sudden in the last couple of days. I was bitching for the last like two weeks about how I wanted fall to get here, and uh, I immediately regret that decision. Well, you know, it arrived in Ohio with a force. I was actually a little worried. I thought we might not be able to do this tonight. Uh, we had no power at the Valentino household up until about 25 minutes ago, so it was no shit. Little, little, little touch and go here for a while, but uh, yeah, we're, uh, we're we're back up and running for now. But if Played I get really, if I get really quiet, you'll know why. Um, nice. <laughs> the power infrastructure in Painesville, Ohio, is unrivaled. Not not what you not nothing to write home about exactly. Oh, it is not. But uh, I will tell you what is uh, worth writing home about. Um, the uh, the guest we have tonight, I'm excited about this. We're doing something a little bit different, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to be joined by journalist Rayan Ali, who is uh, based down there in Columbus by you. Uh, his work has been published by Wired, Spin, The Atlantic, The AV Club, and more. Very diverse resume. That's awesome. And uh, his new book, NBA Jam, will be released on Tuesday. Rayan, welcome. How are you? Hey, I'm doing all right, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So anybody who knows me knows I love NBA Jam. So when I saw your book was coming out, I was interested right away. You didn't, it didn't need a hard sell for me to uh, want to pick this up and check it out. Um, I'm kind of curious, though, what's your background and how did you end up uh, deciding to, to write about NBA Jam and how did this whole project come together? Yeah. Now, do you want to know about the history of the project itself or about my story with NBA Jam or both? A little, little of both. We got time. Yeah. All right. So let me take you way back. This is back to the mid nineties. So uh, I am, I'm half Pakistani, half American. So my mom's a white woman named Sarah from Marietta, Ohio. My dad's a Pakistani dude named Deed from Karachi, Pakistan. Um, But yeah, so I was, I grew up in Dallas and then, so I was born in Dallas, grew up over there. Then I spent most of my time uh, back in Karachi in the nineties over there, which they didn't, they don't have NBA basketball over there. Now, of course, I imagine it's a different story nowadays. Um, but back when I was a kid, I remember first seeing something about NBA basketball with this ad on the back of a comic book. And it was for a game called NBA Jam. And at this point, I was probably, let's say, nine or 10 when I was seeing it for the first time. And I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. I like these logos a lot. I think I was like, it was like the Sonics logo popped out. You know, they just really cranked up the contrast on those ads. Um, I was like, man, this looks cool. So I was definitely a video gamer as a kid, had a Genesis at the time or a Sega Mega Drive, the European version, um, actually Sega Mega Drive 2. 
And then I started playing NBA Jam, and they got me really into basketball. And I loved basketball for years. So I was already passionate about video games. And then NBA Jam brought me into this new world of loving basketball. Of course, I had stuff like Beckett basketball magazines sent over from the States, you know, things like trading cards too. But NBA Jam was a real center uh, centerpiece of that. So fast forward several years later, I mean, I always knew I wanted to write. I've been writing for a long time. Uh, I've been writing, I think, even before since I graduated college, which was 2008, and done lots of cool freelance stuff, lots of music, lots of pop culture pieces. Like you said, Wired, AV Club, Rolling Stone, Spin, uh, over in Cleveland, the Cleveland scene for a minute, Um, Cincinnati City Beat over in Cincinnati, lots of alt weeklies all across the country. Um, Let's see, I'm not sure if I mentioned, you might have, I might have just said this, but Rolling Stone was one of them too. American Airlines in-flight magazine, all kinds of stuff. So I knew I really wanted to write for years. And I did lots of music writing, lots of cool pop culture writing. I got to interview Mike Tyson once for a story. You got to interview lots of WWE guys, lots of musicians all over the place. Um, Anyways, I was working on freelance stuff for a long time. And then I was like, I really want to do something substantial. Because as a freelancer, a lot of the assignments are pretty much short little music previews quick interviews. I mean, things that are fun to do, but nothing that you can really sink your teeth into. And I heard about this publisher, Boss Fight Books. And the whole idea with the series is they do individual books based on video games. So they'll do a book about Super Mario Brothers 2 by one author, and then another book about Super Mario Brothers 3 by another author, and then a book about Galga from a separate author. So different books about different games by different authors and they had an open call for pitches and I was thinking man what could I write about that would be something that I feel like would have a real substantial story something interesting and something that I could really find some cool people to talk to about or talk to for it so I was really trying to think what I could do for it Um, I play video games definitely don't play as much as I used to but my mind kept coming back to NBA Jam and my love for it as a kid and my love for Midway games I love Mortal Kombat I was a huge Mortal Kombat fan and then one thing led to another I wrote Boss Fight Books, I think a 37-page pitch, which was way over the top. I mean, I think most people would do like eight pages or 10 pages. I did 37 pages. I really wanted this thing. So I came up with this whole idea to them. Uh, this is back in July, probably not July. It was actually maybe May 2015 when I was first working on all this. And I pitched it to them. Things go really well. They say yes to this. And then lo and behold, all of a sudden, I'm writing this NBA Jam book. I have a general idea about what I want to do it about. I know I want it to be about NBA Jam and about the story of NBA Jam. But four years later, my life's definitely in a very different place. And my perception of NBA Jam is totally different uh, in terms of all the stuff that I know about and all the people I've talked to about it. So it's been a really cool journey. Started all the way back over overseas in the, uh, in the 90s, and it's uh, led to today. So it's really cool to have this opportunity. Talking to all of these people that were instrumental in putting the game together, and I, I want to get into the roster of everyone that you talked to after that, but um, having gone through this, did it add to the mystique of this game that we grew up with, or did it kind of, was this like pulling back the curtain on The Wizard of Oz for you? That's a great question. A little bit of both. I would say it was pulling back the curtain the way that you hear about things that, you know, you don't really think about too much, or at least I didn't think about while playing it as a kid. I mean, I know, for example, in NBA Jam, those games are always so close. You know, everything is just, you know, you can't really get too far ahead of your opponent unless one of you is really good or one of you is really bad. And that's something I never really thought about. I was just like, oh, that's the magic of NBA Jam. And then I come to find out years later that the creator of NBA Jam is basically creating code uh, called rubber banding, where one player 
one player does well, then the other player uh, starts to do well too. As in, it's always going back and forth. It's like a little on a little seesaw. So it was, uh, that was demystifying it a little bit, but a lot of it still really kept the mystique for me. I mean, thinking that NBA Jam was created by seven people over 10 months in Chicago in the 1990s. It was when the Bulls hype was at a fever pitch. I mean, actually, I'm not even sure it was a fever pitch, but it was getting towards a fever pitch. I'd say for me, just off the top of my head, I'd guess like 96 is fever pitch. But, you know, of course, Michael Jordan was everywhere. The Bulls were everywhere. This is Chicago. I mean, Mortal Kombat uh, 1 had just come out. And it was really cool to hear about these people and how they got along and how they didn't get along and how much they poured into this game. So that really added to the whole mythology of it. So I got to uh, speak to the team and track them all down from where they are in life now. I think almost all of them are still in the video game business. One of them might not be. Um, but it was super cool. And that, I mean, that really added to the mystique thinking like, wow, seven guys go back, you know, in 993, they come up with this amazing game. Or actually in 992, they come up with this amazing game and release it in 993. And then it makes a billion dollars in arcades. And that's something I didn't really know is that made a billion dollars in one year in quarters slash tokens alone, which is wild. I mean, Jurassic Park made like 353 million, something like that in 93. And Jurassic Park was everywhere. NBA Jam did a billion in quarter slash tokens, not even counting the home games or any of the adaptations or tournament edition or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, there was definitely a, a mystique element to it as I got to learn more about the people in there. I was pulling it back the curtain a little bit as I learned why they made the decisions they did. Ryan, you mentioned these, these huge sales figures. Did, did the NBA Jam people and uh, Midway, anybody have an inkling that this could do anything like this. I, I thought it was interesting just because like, I, I, I started reading some of this and I think I'm a, probably about seven or eight chapters in now. Um, and I thought it was really cool where you started it, where these guys are, you know, that first night where there was that one arcade in Chicago where they could kind of see people, um, you know, gathering around the machine and, and show some interest in it. What was there like a real point where they realized like, oh my God, this thing is just basically going to start printing money left and right. Well, they realized it immediately. So the team, when they were there, they went over to uh, Dennis's Place for Games at 957 West Belmont Avenue over in downtown Chicago. Um, and they knew that the game was going to take off right based on that first night because people would just keep on crowding the machine. The NBA themselves, though, they did not. They were much more skeptical. And that was one of the other cool stories I found out was that there was a lot of resistance from the NBA in terms of granting midway the license because at that point – you know, it was just coming off uh, the 80s and Times Square was a much seedier place than it is now. And the NBA's headquarters was over in Times Square. So their perception of arcade games wasn't anything really positive. And the NBA had never licensed uh, and never given their license to an arcade game before. Not until NBA Jam came along. So the, it took a lot of work, took about, I think it was something like eight, nine months just to get the license itself. Now, keep in mind, the development team is working in the background because they're assuming that they're going to get the license. They're hoping they're going to get the license. But that wasn't always a done deal, which is weird to think. I mean, it seems so obvious that NBA Jam would make money, but the NBA were kind of like, eh, maybe, maybe not. And then the NBA really knew it was the All-Star Weekend of 993. So this is February 20th, 21st, something like that, um, over in Salt Lake City when they had a whole arcade that was just NBA Jam that they, you know, they did their big debut for it. And then, you know, people were just crowding these machines. There was so much excitement. And the NBA at that point got to see for themselves that it was going to be this huge, huge thing. 
But there was a lot of resistance early on from the NBA and a lot of skepticism. I think the midway guys always knew this was going to be a hit, which is why they poured so much into it and why Roger Sharp, who worked on the licensing side, was so adamant that they get the license. I mean, without the license, NBA Jam is still a really cool game, but it's not NBA Jam by any means. So getting that license was so pivotal. And in the end, it was a really good thing that they did for everybody involved. And of course, afterwards, NBA is happy to give out a license to whomever if they need to. So yeah, you've seen all kinds of NBA uh, arcade games and things like that pop up since. And of course, there's NBA Jam Tournament Edition too. I was just going to say, I was really surprised in reading some of the early chapters. I didn't really understand that, like what you were just saying here, arcades in general were kind of uh, almost looked down upon and um, it, it just, a, not any specific game. It was just, you know, it was just kind of like a place where people were getting in trouble and um, it was frowned upon and, and that sort of thing. Um, and you know, what you're saying here was trying to get the NBA on board with just having a game in an arcade period. Was there any sort of pushback on the type of game that this was? Cause I, I, it kind of cracks me up that you're saying like when, you know, when you were growing up, one of your first experiences with basketball was NBA jam. Well, I love NBA jam, but I mean, there's not people in the real NBA getting shoved uh, two rows deep into the stands right. uh, to create turnovers and stuff like that. It's, it's not really uh, pure basketball that uh, maybe the NBA would want to be associated with, but I didn't really pick up any sort of resistance on that. Was there? Not really. No. When they got to see it in action, well, actually when they saw the demo itself, so there was always resistance to giving the idea of the license, but when they saw that pitch video, they were just bowled over by the quality because they knew that Midway was going to make a good product uh, after they'd seen it for themselves. They're like, wow, this game looks just like real life. And for 993, that really did look like real life. I mean, that was something special. Um, or yeah, rather for 992, that had been looked just like real life. Um, yeah, so there wasn't really resistance when it comes to stuff like that. And I think that they didn't really mind things like on fire. I'm sure that there was the shoving was something they probably had to do like a little bit back and forth on. Um, I never really heard anything about that from doing all my interviews about, you know, there being much pushback over there. I could imagine if they ever tried to do a punching element, um, like that NBA, the NBA would have been like, absolutely no way. But for NBA Jam's actual core gameplay, the NBA didn't really mind. I think they saw the value in it. They saw the vision. I mean, uh, Michelle Brown uh, is her name, uh, the NBA license, NBA's licensing director for that division back in the early 90s and the late 80s, I think. And she said to me that Mark Trammell, the main creator of NBA Jam, reminded her of a rock star. I mean, he seemed like a musician. And I think there was a lot of faith in them after they got to see the game for itself. Now, they didn't always appreciate what Midway did, though because Midway would then go in and do all kinds of little jokes on their own side. Like they would do things like they added Mortal Kombat characters to an early version of Tournament Edition without letting the NBA know. This is when that Mortal Kombat hysteria about the violence was really at a peak. So the NBA was absolutely 100% not on board. Take that out immediately, which they had to. And there was little things like that. Um, there was another cool detail is that, you know, the, the game has all these little backboards in it. Uh, or not, not backboards, whatever you call them. Those scrolling ad boards over there. And, oh, on the scorer's table, right. Yeah, exactly, by the scorer's table, yeah. And Midway initially wanted to use actual actual brands for that. I mean, just like you'd have in real life. They wanted to make that part realistic. Then for a minute, they even one of them even pitched, like, how about putting uh, something like a Malcolm X quote on there? Because the Malcolm X movie was just about to come out, the Spike Lee Malcolm X movie. And uh, the NBA was absolutely not on board with doing anything with real sponsors in there because they did not want to make this – you know, want to leverage any kind of licenses that they didn't own themselves. 
and even they, in the end, they own the NBA Jam license. So there was resistance to that degree. But when it came down to like the shoves um, or the dunks or the on fire, I think that they kind of saw the value of that. Now, of course, nowadays it'd probably be a different story. But back in 1993, I don't think that bothered them nearly as much. And it's funny, you mentioned so much about the licensing around it, and you can, and that was a huge get for them, right? The game was kind of a non-starter if they weren't able to get that licensing. Um, I, I wonder, as you were talking to guys, it's the middle of the 90s. They're trying to get the licensing for an NBA game, and they feel like they're making some traction. They hear back from the NBA, like, okay, it's great. It's licensed, except you can't have Michael Jordan. Um, did that... I mean, how often does that come up? Did that sort of take any of the wind out of their sails as they were going? Because that, I mean, it's that's 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 kind of a big deal during that time, no? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, for a minute there, they they had Michael Jordan in the game, I think, in a very early version, or they're playing around with it. But then Michael Jordan's licensing fees were so much that I think that they they minded a little bit. But then they're also like realistically, look, there's no chance that we're going to get him for the game because he costs so much, even by the early '90s. To say nothing of what his status was in the late 90s. Um, So, yeah, so I definitely think that there was, you know, oh, man, we want to have Jordan in there. You know, they pitched him. They they want they asked for Jordan in an early uh, copy of of rosters. So uh, Mark Turmel, the creator, and John Hay, who did the sound, um, a lot of the audio for, for the game they came up with the whole roster list and they pitched the NBA on it. And then NBA said no to Michael Jordan. And there was no way that they could realistically afford that or, or that would be worth it. So I don't think it took their win that went out of those sales for very long at all, because I never really heard anything about that. I mean, there was a little bit of conversation about it, but nothing to the point where it's like, Oh, the game is just can't survive without it because the NBA was so huge at that time. And they had, you know, Barkley Shaq in the early version of the game, Patrick Ewing, Sean Kemp, Dominique Wilkins. I'm probably forgetting Carl Malone, John Stockton. I'm probably forgetting like tons of amazing people just off the top of my head. So I definitely, yeah, I'm sure it affected them for a minute, but it wasn't anything that really stopped them. I also wonder um, how, how much did this, what, how much did this do for Horace Grant? If not for Jordan oh, yeah. Spies, how many people actually really re- remember Horace Grant without it? I think, I mean, I think it did a lot, man. I think it did that. And Mike Isolino over on the Mavericks, he was immortalized in the game, and from what I understand, he was kind of like a B player or a C player at the time. And people still will come up to him and talk to him about NBA Jam because of that game, even though he was never a star in the league or anything like that. Yeah, I think a lot of those guys really looked on that fondly. I mean, Patrick Ewing met the – or, yeah, one of the the artists on the game who did the heads met Patrick Ewing in an airport once in this airport gift shop in Chicago. And he comes up to him and he says, oh, I did your, your head on NBA Jam. Like, I'm the guy that actually made your head in there. Patrick Ewing did not like the way that his his face looked in the game. So he jokingly like either like choked the guy or like lifted him up by his shirt or something. And it was like, you're the one I have to blame. And so the players were very aware of this. And I mean, Sean Kemp had a cabinet. Shaq had one cabinet. Then I think two cabinets. Gary Payton would go on to own cabinets. The players loved that. So I think there was just so much excitement about the game at that time that, um, yeah, and even though those guys who are those, those B players – C players would still love to be in NBA Jam and are still remembered for that today. You talked to some of those players as well. Um, what, what kind of stories were they sharing with you, and, and what did you take away from from all that? Yeah, uh, the two players I got to speak to, I got to speak. So I got to speak to one contemporary player, uh, Kenneth Fareed, who I think was on the Rockets last I checked, and I got to speak to Shaq and Glenn Rice, and those were big ones for me because I love Shaq in the 90s, and man, I love Glenn Rice too. 
Um, I was super geeked out to talk to Glenn Rice. And Glenn Rice told me such great stories. I mean, he he told me that, how would I begin this? It was that, yeah, it was him. The, the, I think the first thing that we really talked about was that, you know, he started playing NBA Jam when he was in the arcade. This is when he was on the Heat. So there were lines at the arcade to play NBA Jam, and he got tired of waiting in the lines. So what, then he went and bought an NBA Jam machine for himself. Did any and of then, your stories include a previous vice presidential candidate by any chance? Because those are my favorite Glenn Rice oh, stories. Oh, yes, yes. Hey, did you know that both of those are NBA Jam uh, characters, though? Really? Sarah Palin's in uh, the, the 2010. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Yeah. Okay. And I think I think they have Glenn Rice as like one of the extra, one of the other characters in there. Did not get to talk about Sarah Palin, nice. but it's cool that they're both characters in the same uh, game franchise. I mean, how often does that happen? Oh, no kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, Glenn Rice was huge into uh, NBA Jam at the time. And when I talked to him, he was super excited. I mean, he said he was addicted to it. It was like a drug for him. And he talked to me about things like big head mode, which is one of those things where like you have to know NBA Jam to know big head mode. I'm like, boom, shakalaka, he's on fire. But big head mode is like one of those things where it's like, okay, you're on another level. And he told me that he would always play as himself and he would just, he gave me these insane numbers that he would do. I don't know if they're true or not. I'm just going to take him at his word. Um, but he loved playing the game and he would stay up to, until all hours playing it. Shaq loved the game. He would do the opposite. Instead of playing as himself, he would always play as somebody who could do something that he couldn't in real life. So he'd play as Chris Mullen or Reggie Miller, a three-point shooter. And he would just go there and he would nail threes all day, just like he could in real life. Um, and Shaq was uh, was so excited to talk about this game and had so many great little stories that uh, it was it was really cool. I mean, in some ways, like I'm a no-name coming in over here with just this book. And he gave me some time and he gave me some great material. So I got to learn a lot about Shaq's love for NBA Jam, which was, which is still really good. I mean, he even did a boom shakalaka for me. <laughs> the play-by-play on that game is classic and yeah. it's and it's fun how some of those phrases have just remained in the lexicon even now almost you know what 25 almost 30 years later um it really i think in general just the cultural impact of nba jam it, it's it's crazy to me how relevant that game still feels now um i mean you're down there in columbus homage the uh retro apparel company it's probably made uh, a small fortune off of just doing a line of NBA Jam shirts. And, you know, there was the new version that came out for what, was it like the 360, I think, uh, probably about eight or nine years ago now. And there have been other versions since then. The game's really had a lot of staying power. Yeah. it's. I think it's one of the things, it's a real testament to how good the game actually is, that people still really care about it. That's one thing to be just nostalgic about it a little bit, to be like, oh, man, wasn't that cool back in the day? But for people to actively play it and then still really get competitive when they play it and really get, you know, if you start drinking and playing NBA Jam, then, you know, the F-bombs are going to fly. People are going to get into it. And, I mean... Sounds like a great Friday night. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And that's why these NBA Jam is a staple of arcades. I mean, it's just, you if you have a barcade, I mean, you have to have an NBA Jam or another Midway game. Um, and yeah, Tim Kitzrow's calls, boom shakalaka, he's on fire, he's heating up, the nail in the coffin, all those classics. The graphics are still great. I mean, the personality of the players in the game, he's on fire. The game had so many different elements going for it, the NBA license, that, I mean, I feel like there's no way that it could fail. And the fact that it still is, you know, it's still actively played and 
people are still buying shirts and there's all this interest in this book really speaks to just how important NBA Jam was. I think there's something just with retro gaming in general right now. I mean, you mentioned like the yeah. bar, the barcades, like 16 bit, I think is the one that's uh, around here in Cleveland. And then they've got some locations uh, down by you guys as well. Uh, you look at like the Nintendo uh, mini, that, that Nintendo classic, that mini Nintendo, and then the SNES version, I think as of last year, they had sold 10 million units um, and they were outselling like the PS4 and the Xbox one, and uh, the, the Nintendo Switch as well. And then within the past year, we've seen these arcade one-up cabinets start popping up that have got, you know, they're, they're the three-quarter size uh, scaled-down uh, versions of classic arcade games, and they're somewhat more affordable. Um, what do you make of this? I, I feel like this it's a really interesting trend, just that all of these games are starting to resurface 25 or 30 years later. Um, I have my theories on it, but I'm kind of curious just from somebody who's spent the last few years researching the classic game industry, um, what, what your thoughts are. Yeah, uh, I think a lot of it comes from the fact that everybody who grew up playing those games, you know, they still have some affection for these games, but also they have more buying power. And there's still, you know, some of those things like when you see that Mortal Kombat logo, that Street Fighter 2 logo, that NBA Jam logo, that'll really bring something out in you. And I think, you know, the audience, you know, that audience from the 90s growing up with those games, loving them so much. And, you know, 25 years later, it's still back in, you know, it's something that's back in style. I think, yeah, first off, it's a quality. I mean, the, the really good games that people loved are still going to be played all these years later. I mean, on the Nintendo, on the Super Nintendo, the Sega Genesis, N64 or whatever. Um, and with the arcades, I mean... Now the arcades are a bit more of a novelty than they used to be. I mean, arcades used to be on every street corner in America. And now with all those going away and now coming back in this new format where you can play a game, but you can also drink. I mean, this is such like, how are you going to, that's like a, that's a can't miss prospect right there. So yeah, I think it has a lot to do with the, with the audience growing up and it being the right time for something like that. You know, I was thinking when I was doing this book or at some point was about, you know, in the late nineties, you had some seventies nostalgia with that seventies show and Austin powers. And I'm sure I'm forgetting some other examples too, um, where like the seventies was kind of like back, back in for a minute. So I think now's the time where the nineties is back in just, you know, 20 years later. So similar to what happened with the seventies. I'm really excited that my starter jackets are coming back in style. Not that oh, yeah. I felt they ever went out of style, whoa, but whoa, yeah, they, those never went out of style. Those are always but people stopped wearing them for a while. Oh yeah, yeah. And... But speaking to this to the staying power overall, one thing I noticed, and I've been to 16 bit um, several times, even when it's not full, there's always there's there's a couple machines that there's always someone on. Right, you'll see a lot of machines that you've seen and you remember from when you were a kid, and you remember thinking they were great games, and you might go and play them now, and you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. There's always people at the NBA Jam one, always. Yeah, always, always. I mean, the thing it's such a fun game to play, and the fact that it moves so fast and it was paced so well. I mean, those guys, they those guys generally delivered a great game, and the the gameplay still really holds up and. Yeah, people just get really into it. I mean, the game has so much stuff working for it. I mean, they've got the calls, of course, and those logos, the jerseys. I mean, just the, even the view of the arena. I mean, all that stuff is just classic. And yeah, NBA Jam, I mean, people get competitive over that. So, I, you know, I think it starts off with nostalgia. Like, let's say you go to 16-bit. You haven't played NBA Jam in a while. Maybe you haven't thought about NBA Jam in a while. You're like, oh boy, I remember this game. We used to love this game when I was a kid. Or I used to love this game in the 90s. 
And then you play it and you're like, wow, I'm getting into it. Like, I really want to beat my opponent. And one of the guys that I talked to for the book, uh, a writer named John Robinson, who used to go by Johnny Ballgame for Game Pro Magazine, he was telling me it was like a fighting game. Like, it was like the first trash-talking game in the arcades where you're just, you know, talking a lot of smack. And it felt like the dynamic of a fighting game, the going back and forth. So the gameplay really holds up. And I think, yeah, when you see people at 16-bit or other arcades just hooked on the machines, it's because that gameplay is keeping them over there. Yeah, I think there's something to that idea of just being able to jump back into a game that you haven't played in two decades and you still remember the controls and they're still pretty easy to pick up. Because, like, I can tell you, I have an Xbox One in my basement and 95% of the time I use that to basically watch YouTube TV on. Mm-hmm. Um, if I want to play games, I'm playing like retro games just because, and you know, like I, I bought, I think it was over the summer, Microsoft ran a sale on last year's NBA 2k game. It was like right during the finals or something. They put it on sale for like four bucks and I'm like, all right, I'll try it for four bucks. I don't care. I played one game on there. And shortly after that, I was back to uh, playing an emulation of NBA jam. Because it's just for some, I mean, if you're like a hardcore gamer, you, you, there's certainly obviously a market for the modern consoles and in the power that they have and all the different things that you can do. But if you're somebody who's casual, and I think in addition to the, what you were talking about with like people in that like late thirties, early forties demographic kind of reaching that stage where they've got buying power, I, I think, you know, if they're a casual gamer, there's something really just familiar and easy about picking up these games that we played as kids. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know what? I think there's also a lot of beauty in the simplicity of games like NBA Jam. I mean, think about it now. If you want to make a video game, obviously you have to be like a big AAA publisher to be able to do this, but you could make any kind of game you wanted, really. Like you can create all these fantastical worlds with 3D graphics. You know, you can do all kinds of different things. And, you know, this is not a knock against current games by any means because there's so much great, great stuff out there. But, you know, in the 90s and in the 80s, you know, you were working with limited tools. You have to be creative with it. I mean, there's like, if you do NBA Jam as five on five, the game won't be as fast. I mean, it won't have the same kind of pace. So they had to work with all those constraints. I mean, those heads, those heads are so famous in NBA Jam, you know, all those those faces. Those were all hand-drawn by the artist. I was talking about Tony Gosky, who, is, who met Patrick Hume in the airport, or in that airport um, gift shop. And he had to like draw them using pictures from magazines and newspapers and things like that and kind of extrapolate angles. You know, nowadays you'd have a bank on gettyimages.com someplace just ready to go. Or, you know, if you're making a game for the NBA, they probably have all this stuff already taken care of. They just send it right on over to you in, a, in some kind of Dropbox file. But they had to work underneath difficult circumstances and really trying to get creative with stuff that I feel like that added to the value of the game. I mean, they really had to use some ingenious tools to do it. Plus the arcade format over there. Like you've got pretty much two minutes to hook somebody. If you're not going to do it within two minutes, then they're not going to stay. They're not going to put more money into it. So you need to do it fast. You need to get their attention. So, I mean, just that simplicity of that and how they had to really tighten those mechanics so that you were into it immediately. I mean, that was something that really sets NBA Jam and all those midway games apart. And I mean, that's one of the, for me, that one of the great draws of arcade games is that you can go play it for a few minutes still get some enjoyment and then move on. There's only a few things to learn. And if it's a good game, you'll keep coming back to it, but you don't need to read, you know, go through a whole bunch of demo modes or do any kind of real extensive research or set up, set aside an hour to get started or anything like that. So 
there's a lot of, I mean, there's so much uh, value in playing like a simple game like that. All right. So I, I have to ask you from your days playing on the Sega Mega Drive uh, to now, if you're in a bar, if you see an NBA Jam machine in the corner, what's your go-to team? Oh, man. See, it's it's a basic answer, but it's a classic answer, and it's a classic answer for a reason, and that's the Utah Jazz. I love Stockton Malone. I was a huge fan of the Jazz in the 90s, especially as Michael Jordan was just running roughshod on them. God, I love the Jazz. Um, for And, of course, I, I love the Sonics, too, who also – the Bulls also dominated and embarrassed a bit. Um, and a tournament edition, it's always going to be Sean Kemp and Gary Payton. I mean, those classics are there. It's – it's a, it's a, I think it's, you know, it's a simple answer, but it's a classic answer for a reason. I mean, Stockton Malone, just a classic one-two punch, and that's where they came up with the stats with. I mean, they were they saw somebody um, in that arcade on the first night at Dennis's Place for Games. You know, some players were playing as Stockton Malone. This kid says, whatever you do, don't let Stockton near the ball. He's just going to get it right, get it right away from him. He's going to steal it. But the NBA Jam programmers hand-programmed the attributes to actually match that. So everybody was the same. They looked different, but they were like M&Ms, you know, different coding on the outside, all the same on the inside. And with the Jazz, that dynamic was one of the first things that they really worked on of Stockton Malone. So I love it for the historical value. I love the Jazz. I really like, you know, big man, small man combo. Definitely the Jazz, you know, nine times out of 10, they'll be the first one I play as. But there's so many other great teams too that you could go up and down the roster and, you know, you got the Knicks over there with uh, Ewing and Starks. Um, of course, I, I love Charles Barkley too. Uh, Charles Barkley. I think it was Dan Marley in the first one. Um, so many good ones, but yeah, for the, for basic NBA jam, for the original NBA jam, Stockton Malone, then for tournament edition, Kemp and Payton. Yeah. The Suns with Barkley and Marley are uh, a, fantastic team to work with. I've had uh, much success with them. Um, I will tell you, I, I like using the Cavs because if you want to shoot threes, Mark Price. Oh, Mark Price is man for that. About as good Phenomenal. as you can get in that game. Yep. The, the, the corner three is, is the way to go. But uh, Brad Doherty, my God, uh, soft as a pillow on that game. I've never seen one player get rejected so many times. <laughs> it infuriated me. I would, I would and like, he was like, a, he was, he was an all-star caliber like seven footer too. So right. and, I and take exception I, to that. How many times he would get swatted at the rim? It was infuriating. So as a Cavs fan, that that was frustrating. That the Cavs were halfway in there to being an unstoppable team, but uh, you know you you do what you can. Yeah, man. You know what's funny too is that like the guys at Midway, like I said, like uh, Mark Tremel and John Hay, they came up with these rosters. Like they knew basketball, but they didn't. They weren't like hardcore basketball experts or anything, or really paying that much attention. So they probably just, you know, guessed on a lot of things. They're like, okay, maybe we won't make him as good, or maybe we won't do this, or maybe we won't do that. So, yeah, so you, those guys are the ones to blame, Mark Trammell and John Hay. They're the ones who came up with those original rosters, and they're the ones who probably determine a lot of the stats. All right, so we're we're kind of right up against the time here. I'm going to press you for one thing. Don't give yeah. away the whole farm, obviously, because you're trying to sell some books here. Absolutely. But- through all your research as you were pulling everything together and talking to all these different people, give us like one nugget where someone told you, I know there's tons of folklore around the story about things they put in there, things that they might not have all this stuff. What's one thing they told you where you were just kind of like, okay, either a, that was real or B wow. I can't like, I can't believe you did that. No one really recognized that time. Give just give us one little nugget from it. 
Oh, man. So I want to take that in a little bit of a different direction in terms of something that I had no idea about uh, when it came to the game that I never even considered that happened. And that was that Tim Kitzrow, the iconic announcer from the arcade version, almost didn't make it into the home versions, which blew my mind. I mean, really? Yeah, yeah. So he didn't make much money at all off NBA Jam. And he's kind of the tragic figure of my book. Great guy. Um, you know, just an iconic voice, but he never really made much money off of it. And he'd probably think like, oh man, Tim Kitzrow, this guy's got to be really living large off NBA Jam. He only made something like between a thousand and fifteen hundred bucks for that first game for the arcade game. So then, you know, after the arcade game comes out, it's huge. Then you get to the home games and you're like, okay, now is going to be the time to cash in. Now he's going to get at least a big check because he's, he's an iconic part of the game. I mean, he's one of the reasons we're still talking about it. So then he goes to a claim and I think he just asks for, I think it was $3,000. And in the grand scheme of things, $3,000 is not that much money, especially when you're a claim who's just made Mortal Kombat, who's going to put out NBA Jam. You've got all these licenses and claim said no. And Tim Kisro stood his ground because somebody advised him to. And then he thought he lost the, uh, the opportunity to be an NBA Jam. He thought it was going to be replaced. And he felt really bad for a second thinking, boy, I just blew this amazing opportunity over $3,000. And then thankfully, somebody to claim had the foresight to be like, look, this is the guy. Like, this is the NBA Jam guy. You can't just get rid of him, especially for $3,000. So they paid him his $3,000. And he made it into the game, into the home games. But it's weird to imagine a time when you wouldn't have Tim Kitzrow's voice in there for the home games because as iconic as those arcade games are, for so many people, you know, the ones who don't really go out to arcades or who live in places where they don't have arcades or just like to play Super Nintendo or Sega Genesis, that's how they know NBA Jam. And removing him from that would drastically change how we remember the game. And it was so crazy to think that we almost lost Tim Kitzrow from those classic games over 3000 bucks from a publisher that went on to sell 6 million copies, not make $6 million, but sell 6 million copies of the Super Nintendo Sega Genesis versions. And they almost cut them loose for three for 3,000. Yeah, you know, the one thing I was going to say with him, uh, with, with Tim Kitzrow, the announcer from NBA Jam, was I, I think, was it uh, was it Midway or, or one of the other companies that had the license a couple of years later and started doing some spinoff games that kind of, they, they were even under different names, but it still kind of looked like NBA Jam, but really wasn't NBA Jam. And they had a different announcer, and it just never really seemed right. Yeah, which ones are you thinking of? Are you thinking of NBA Hang Time or College Slam or NBA Jam Extreme? What do you think? College of? Slam was was just bad in general. Yeah. But there was an NBA one. Was it Hang Time or Maximum Hang Time? Or- yes, Hang Time. Hang Time was one that Midway did that had Neil Funk in it, who is the Chicago Bulls announcer. I'm not sure if he's still in the role, but he was for a long, long time at the time. So I don't know why they ended up passing on Kisro for that one or what happened there. But yeah, Tim Kisro was in the original NBA Jam. He was in Tournament Edition. Then he returned for Showtime. Of course, he was in Blitz. But it's definitely weird to play without him. It's not the same. And the Marv Albert one is actually really bad. I mean, Marv Albert's a legend uh, for basketball commentary, but within the video game business or within that that whole circle of him doing a video game, wasn't really much. He wasn't really much at all. I mean, he was really like he's an NBA Jam Extreme, which was one that Acclaim put out. And he just sounds so, so bored. So like, okay, time to cash this massive, massive check. And this is another thing that bothered Tim Kisrow too, is that Marv Albert made a lot of money off of being an NBA Jam game where he half-assed it. Whereas Tim Kisrow put his heart into it and got paid relative pennies. So yeah, there's, there's so much behind the scenes uh, 
I'm not sure drama is the right word, but, you know, back and forth that I learned about that was really interesting, too, that I had no idea even existed. The crazy thing is, like, who's buying that game to hear Marv Albert? That's not why you buy an NBA GM type of game. It's Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, he got paid a lot of money for it. And he sounded really kind of pretty lackadaisical about it. And his they gave him some pretty bad lines, too, from what I remember. Like, instead of he's heating up, he got I smell smoke, which is, <laughs> yeah, it's like, I mean, I smell smoke is like, it's. I mean, it's, uh, I want to say it's kind of cool, but I smell smoke is like, it's not any, you know, he's heating up. Even if you just say that, not even doing a Tim Kisser impression. Okay, that sounds that's, way cooler than I smell smoke. That's but, the I mean, Mr. Pimp to, to, to Tim Kisser's Dr. Pepper. I mean, come on. Yeah. What is that? Oh, no, that's, uh, wasn't right at all. Yeah. So thankfully that was pretty short lived. Um, yeah, Tim Kisser has been in a whole bunch of the games. He was in Blitz. He was in Showtime. He did uh, some NHL games. He was in. Um, he did the voice of the announcer for Wayne Gretzky, the Wayne Gretzky Hockey for the N64, and the arcade version that came out. He did a lot of cool stuff. But yeah, there's nothing like him. If you they, put somebody else in that role, you just say, "Where's Tim Kisser?" Yeah, they brought him back for the NBA Jam uh, Modern Edition for I can't remember what On Fire Edition. I think it was called whatever the one that was on the 360. I remember. They brought him back for that. It was good to hear him again. Um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about Arcade 1-Up. This was the other question I had for you was, you know, I, I think it was at the Consumer Electronics Show last January. Somebody spotted an NBA Jam Arcade 1-Up cabinet in the background in one of the photos, and a lot of people got excited that there was going to be an NBA Jam cabinet coming out. And do you think that's ever actually going to happen? Because my impression with all of these old sports games – is that that's like the one type of game in like, whether it's the Nintendo mini or these arcade one cabinets that those old sports games with old athletes are the hardest ones to actually make happen because of licensing issues. Is that something, is that a game ever going to actually happen? You think? See, that's the thing. I thought it was going to happen. I was really surprised to see anything come of it. I think it still could happen. I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but I know that arcade one up just released the Ninja Turtles one and the Ninja Turtles one is lacking the original theme song, like for some licensing reason. And I mean, that's an iconic song. That's an iconic part of the game. It's weird to think of a Ninja Turtles game without the Ninja Turtles theme song. So if you're going to get NBA Jam in there without some of the players or try to like work around it, I don't know how it would look. I think there's a chance that something can come of it. But yeah, the world of these licenses is a really thorny world. I mean, there's always, you know, oh, you go over here, you have to do this, you have to do that. NBA rights and whatnot, and especially when you're dealing with things that are decades old. There's a reason that those kinds of games don't get re-released the same way that, you know, you'll re-release Punch-Out or you'll re-release Star Fox or whatever. So I think it can come to fruition, but I'm a little skeptical. And yeah, I actually completely forgot about that one-up cabinet or that arcade one-up. Um, I'm still hoping that it comes out, but I mean, honestly, I don't know. I haven't heard too much about it. The only thing I, yeah, I saw the same thing you did at that Consumer Electronics show, but haven't heard anything about it since. All right, Trevor, did you have any more questions? No, I think we got a lot. I don't want them to give away everything here. So I got a lot in there, man. I got a lot I'm more sure. even than this. Yeah. And it's always a pleasure to talk about it too, is because I get to talk about different things with different people and in different ways. So that's such a cool thing about NBA jam is that it means different things to different people. And uh, you're always finding out I'm, I'm always learning new things about the game myself. 
Well, I appreciate you um, providing me with a, an advanced copy and getting a, just a chance to look through it to prep for this interview. I have a big flight uh, to Denver next week, and I was planning on reading the rest of the book uh, when I was on the plane, but I got to be honest, I don't think I'm going to last that long. I'm, I'm probably <laughs> going to plow through the rest of it because uh, I got to tell you folks, while you're sitting there waiting uh, for Arcade One Up to get the licensing issue squared away, uh, and get an NBA Jam cabinet out there. You should really go out and pick up Rayan's book when it drops on uh, Tuesday, right? That's uh, the day it goes on sale officially. Yeah, yeah. So it's really exciting. That's going to be the day the Kindle and the e the electronic versions will go live. Uh, unfor- unfortunately, I think that we might be running a little bit of a snag with the physical printers, but those copies will be out soon. Uh, it's just a matter of time. But yeah, on the twenty second. Um, in the meantime, you can go to tinyurl.com slash NBA Jam book and see a whole synopsis of it, see what the cover looks like, pre-order from there. You can also go on the Kindle store if you buy it now. Like, let's say, you know, we're, um, let's see. I would say that, yeah, you could you could probably go in there and buy it now, and then it would just automatically deliver, deliver to your Kindle on the 22nd. Um, yeah, it's, it's super cool. Thank you for the so much for the kind words. I hope you uh, enjoy it and you learn a lot of cool stuff about Midway and that whole game, that whole era that you didn't know. There's uh, all these amazing stories that, I mean, there are some great little snippets and anecdotes and quotes that I had to cut from the book so I could make it even longer. And it's currently the longest book that this series has ever published, which I take as a point of pride. And I also take it as a little bit of like, okay, if it's going to be long, it has to be good. So there's a lot of good stuff in there. And yeah, I definitely encourage you to check it out in the event that you're into old games, into game development. If you're 90s NBA, there's all these different little Venn diagrams you could do of the people that loved NBA Jam, people loved arcades. And it's just a really cool story, too, of the people that made the game. I mean, I get into their personalities, and it's not all just happy stuff either. There's some sad things that happen, and there's some bad things that happen to people, too, um, that you might not always expect or hope for. But uh, that's just the story of NBA Jam. It's got a lot of twists and turns. All right. Well, I was going to wrap this up, but now you've opened the door. I got to ask you one more question. You said you had some great anecdotes that you were not able to fit into the book. Can you give us uh, a nail in the coffin exclusive here? One, oh, uh, one story oh, that didn't, didn't make the final print. I'd be I'd be more than happy to. Yeah. Um, let's see. As far as this isn't so much as, as far as anecdotes, but as far as people I talked to, I spoke to uh, a woman who has an NBA Jam tattoo. I think it's on her thigh. It's like the NBA Jam logo. I think it's matched with like an ice cream cone, but it was something cool. And I was like, boy, I kind of want to talk about this whole like NBA jam tattoo that somebody has and her story of how she spent one summer in 2003 playing NBA jam all summer with a friend of hers. Um, and then never ended up. Uh, and then I never ended up using this, this segment cause I had to move on to something else. Um, otherwise there were some really good quotes about how disgusting Midway was as a building. I had somebody who gave this really graphic description of how there were rats in the building and how like it was just, you know, this place you think that, okay, you're making these big video games. It's going to be someplace nice. No, it's just disgusting. And all these little details of how grimy it was. And there was some kind of, I think there was something leaking through the ceiling or some kind of mold. Um, That's the kind of stuff that I had to end up leaving out um, just because of space, even though it was really entertaining. I had this one great block quote from this guy. Um, who was announcer uh, on NBA Jam videos, as in for the preview videos that they did for the NBA, he would uh, voice over that kind of stuff, stuff for Mortal Kombat. Um, I'm sure there's some other really good things that I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but yeah, I mean, I just wanted to go into depth and talk about where Air Dog is now, you know, iconic secret character from NBA Jam. Who is he today? He's an English teacher. 
I didn't really get to get get into that in the book for space and for pacing reasons. But yeah, there's all kinds of cool little details. So cross your fingers that someday this leads to another version to NBA Jam Tournament Edition, and I get to flesh it all out and throw in some other stuff that uh, I never got a chance to put in this one. Well, I will tell you the stories that are in this one are fantastic. And again, I would encourage everybody to go check it out. Rayon, thank you for joining us. Uh, This has been a lot of fun. Of course. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me. And thanks for the great questions. Absolutely. As for us, you can subscribe to the nail in the coffin on Apple podcasts. We're now on Spotify and uh, we're of course are on Google podcasts, Stitcher, the tune in app, as well and you can always stream us on your computer on waitingfornextyear.com our thanks again to rayon ali writer of nba jam the book published by boss fight books goes on sale tuesday we'll have a link to uh where you can purchase that book in the show notes for this episode that's going to do it for us for this week i am tom valentino for travis julie it's been the nail in the coffin we will talk to you again soon should be simple just put on your shoes and go and yet when you try to learn about how to get better at it especially as you age you're confronted with conflicting advice complicated workouts and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you on the planted runner i'll share exactly how to run faster longer and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-back training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you. 